This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, we are talking about banks. We were, too, after the close yesterday, but uh, we're seeing the trade today. Among the most read, Fed test slaps Wall Street Titans, unleashes record payout. Here with what you need to know about the Fed's latest round of stress tests are Yamin Onoran. He is senior finance writer at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. He's been pretty busy, along with uh, Ed Gerson. He's a senior vice president, lead banking analyst at Height Capital Markets on the phone from Washington. Bottom line, Yamin, um, are the banks in good shape? Uh, they seem to be doing great. The stress test was really harsh this time, um, including 50, a 65% drop in, in Dow Jones Industrial in the hypothetical scenario. That's pretty harsh. That's, you know, that's a really bad crisis. It's the market cutting in half, more yeah, than more half. more than half. Wow. I mean, half is, is something, yeah. but it's more than half. So huh. very harsh scenario, big losses, hypothetical again, and yet they're able to distribute more about $170 billion dollars um, in the next four quarters. That's a great number. It's up more like $30 million from a year ago. Um, most banks did, did really well. Even, even the ones that sort of had to revise their capital pro- request down, they were asking a lot. They, they, they just trimmed it a little yeah. and, and still are doing great. I mean, Wells Fargo is almost doubling how much money it's going to return to shareholders. That was those, a surprise, yeah, right? Yeah, th- those are really amazing numbers. So that's why investors are happy. Uh, we had a, a couple of banks that weren't doing great. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, which we kind of could tell from last week's results, uh, they really got hit by the by the ratio by the hypothetical scenarios. So they had to stick to previous year's levels in their capital distributions, which is still not too bad. In other words, they're still continuing to distribute, uh, uh, pay dividends, and 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 buy back shares. Right. Uh, but they just can't increase like everyone else. And Deutsche Bank failed. Well, no surprise there. I feel We've like- talked about Deutsche Bank how many hundred times. Right. It's the same story. They're str- struggling to, to right the ship, and, and you right. know, they'll get there one day. And Ted, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, both a little bit lower today. A little lower. I mean, I'm just curious. You know, I wouldn't suggest that the banks were sandbagging the Fed, but did they submit aggressive capital return plans knowing that the Fed was going to kind of pull them back and get them back to that other level? Well, that's a theory. But, you know, another thing is, is let's not forget Fed has its own formulas, they um, they put the same hypothetical scenario into their models and come up with lost numbers. The banks have their own models and say, in this kind of economic environment, here's how our portfolio would, would, would turn out. In their own model, based on their own models, they make some uh, estimates and then they say, okay, here's how much we should ask for. But in a negotiated then, way, do they go in there and well, ask for more? Hang on a second. I do want to bring Ed also into this conversation. Ed Groshans, you cover the financials as well. Um, you're listening to us talk. You're listening to Yaman talk. What's your take on those stress tests? I, I think what the stress test shows is, is just how well capitalized the industry is to absorb, I agree, with the elevated hits, very strenuous test, and yet now we have record capital distributions, 
you know, across the board, yes, yes, there are a handful of companies that had to adjust and things along those lines. Uh, I was appreciating the conversation there. Did did the banks submit aggressive plans and have to dial it back? I think to some degree, yes. And I agree with Yaman's comments that, you know, J.P. Morgan can only submit relative to its internal models. They really, they, while they have more information from the Fed about the Fed's model, they don't have all the information. So. Uh, my view is I prefer the banks to stretch relative to their models and then have the Fed tell them to dial it back. I don't think that's so bad. And the main reason being is if they're not stretching, then they're going to wind up holding too much capital, and that's going to pressure returns and profitability. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's absolutely right. So, so investors want to see them stretch um, and, and then revise down when they see last week we got the DFAST results, mm-hmm. which, which show what the Fed's models ended up with. So they look at those numbers. They're like, oh, okay. This is, well, bigger and the losses than we estimated. So here's the math. Let's uh, decrease what we had asked originally for. But that's totally fine because now the Fed allows that. I mean, the, 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 the getting the, you know, uh, uh, the rev- revision is really there is no uh, strings attached to it. Right. So that's fine. Um, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley situation was a little different. Uh, but there they really, you know, they, I think, tried to argue that the, the tax reform brought down their capital and it was one time, so they should be allowed to, to do things differently. Right. The, the Fed gave them some leeway. It's not it's not 100%. No, you cannot because they are continuing to distribute dividends, but um, they, they were in a weaker position right. as anyway. Ed, just quickly, 20 seconds. Is it a good thing that we continue to go through these stress tests? Just very quickly. I, I think we could start to go to biannual. I, I don't think an annual is worthwhile. It could always go back to annual in the mm. midst of or preceding a crisis. But right now, there's a lot of time and expense. Yeah. And I think, you know, was it six years? And we keep passing now. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I think Fed, Fed likes these. Even yeah. under new leadership, I think with quarrels there, I think the, the, the annual tests are going to stay. Yaman Anaran, our senior finance writer at Bloomberg News, Ed Groshans. He's senior vice president, lead banking analyst at Hyde Capital Markets on the phone for DC. You're listening to Bloomberg. Don't you love that, Ted? Like, you feel like that's what countries are saying as they see President uh, Trump talk tough when it comes to tariffs and trade. They're fighting back. Trudeau is the latest one. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of Canadian pride up there. They uh, are not just going to step back. You know, the big meeting of the uh, alliances that was held a couple of weeks ago up there. And as a result, uh, that just kind of blew the lid off of this happy meeting. Do you remember the photos of Merkel standing over Trump and stuff like that? But boy, Canada firing back, right? Yeah. Hey, let's bring in Stephanie Marotta, Canadian equities reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us uh, from our bureau in Toronto. So Stephanie, Ted and I talking about, you know, the back and forth and everybody watching. And yet you can't forget that G7 photo with Angela Merkel uh, surrounded by the G7 members uh, looking at Donald Trump. Canada firing back. Talk to us about this news. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And, you know, of course, there was that announcement today. And Minister of Foreign Affairs, Christian Freeland, she confirmed that the government is going ahead with tariffs on U.S. products. And, as you know, those go into effect on July 1st. But she also explained how the liberal government will support those who are affected by these tariffs. So today, the Canadian government talking about how they're prepared to spend $2 billion to protect jobs in steel and manufacturing. You talked earlier about uh, how GM is preparing for job losses. Canada is also preparing for any impacts that could happen as a result of these tariffs. And so some, this is a, 
There's something, uh, you, you know, when, when I visualize this, it's almost like a war effort. Do you know? It's like the country is totally being embraced yeah. around one common thing. It's like, you know, let's, uh, let's worry about the country below us. So does it feel that way up there with the pride that Canadians have? I think so. I think we're seeing it play out in a couple different ways. For one, you're seeing the government come out and say, you know, Canada's not going to back down. Um, very strong statement there. We're also seeing that happen on the ground as well. A lot of Canadians talking about bringing this to the checkout counters and, and buying Canadian products. Um, these tariffs are, are supposed to be implemented on July 1st, and that's a very significant day for us up here in Canada. It's Canada Day. So it is a very patriotic day. Uh, whether or not that has any significance, I don't know. Right. But I think we're feeling it. I love your story. I love your reporting. And you say the economic impact of the latest tariffs fight, though, is minimal compared with a pair of other looming Canada-U.S. trade issues. And we're talking about potential auto tariffs and threats to end NAFTA. I mean, these are the big issues, Stephanie, that we all are kind of watching out for. And certainly investors are keeping a close watch on. Absolutely. Um, And it's from those big ticket items like auto. We're still waiting to see what's going to happen there. Steel and aluminum is, of course, going to have a large effect on uh, on manufacturers and also Canadian companies. And then we're also seeing Canada implement tariffs on the less expected items, everything from whiskey to motorboats to to toilet paper. The list is very wide-ranging. Um, and it looks like Canada took a month and took a concerted effort, and there's obviously a very strategic push here to target uh, key regions that are very important politically for, for Trump and the Republicans. You know, south of the border, we have the perception that Canadians are a modest type and that they're very gentle and kind. But there's a chance that Canada could turn to China for aluminum. Wouldn't that just ramp things up? Sorry, ramp things up in what sense? Uh, well, the fight with Trump, I mean, to really poke the bear if uh, Canada turns to China for aluminum. Right, and, and we heard Minister Freeland today say that she doesn't want to escalate matters, uh, but that the Canadian government is focused on on standing their ground. And that's also, I'm in their minds, they're probably also thinking about Canadians themselves and what's best. So if that means turning to other markets, that may be something that they're looking at. You know, what's interesting, too, is I think about in this story, and forgive me, I'm trying to look. Uh, oh, I guess it was the chief economist at Scotiabank that you guys talked to for this story. They said, if you get a major trade war, the probability of recession is real. We keep talking about how, you know, growth not as strong as everybody thought. We're seeing things around the world and how that maybe is a good thing because we have growth, but not as strong as everybody expected. But that gives the central banks like kind of a, a little bit of some breathing room in terms of raising rates and and that could be good for the environment and good for stocks and so on and so forth. But this trade war is serious because that's what could potentially tip uh, certain countries and, and the world potentially into a recession, uh, Stephanie. Just got about 30 seconds. Right. And it's interesting that you say that because in the Canadian stock market, you know, the market really has wavered. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen any discernible impact that's come from trade. Um, so we're still waiting to see that play out in the markets, to be quite honest. Uh, today was a good day for the Canadian stock market. It was up to one of its highest points since 2013, and that was largely boosted by energy. So we'll have to see how this plays out once these tariffs are actually in place. Right, and the tariffs begin on Sunday. So, you know, right. it all starts to, it's not, no longer talk or back and forth. It actually becomes a reality, and it starts to potentially have an impact. Stephanie Morota, thank you so much. Canadian equities reporter at Bloomberg News. She's joining us from our bureau in Toronto. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Carol Master, along with Ted Canova, and this is Bloomberg Radio. It's the fun. 
TikTok, everybody. Tesla uh, shares are lower today as Tesla nears the moment of truth to meet its production goals for the Model 3. Let's get an update joining myself and Ted Canova here in our 1130 studio. We've got an update from Liam, Liam Denning. He's energy mining and commodities columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. He, though, joins us on the phone in New York. Uh, Liam, um, wouldn't be the first time that Tesla's put out a production schedule and, and missed it, but it's getting more serious, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, we, we, uh, if you go back to uh, the last time we were here, uh, just coming up to the end of March, um, back then uh, Tesla was, uh, was promising uh, 2,500 uh, Model 3s a week. Um, <clears throat> and the market got kind of spooked. Uh, there were a couple of things that happened. I think people began to, you know, question whether Tesla could even reach that target. Um, then, then there was a a dislocation in the bond market. There was a, a downgrade from Moody's. Um, now, when the results came out, it turns out, you know, Tesla had kind of gotten close in the last week of the quarter, um, and that enabled them to restore some faith. Um, and since then, we've had, you know, a lot of um, a lot of signals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure how much of it is real signal or noise, uh, but we've certainly been getting a barrage of it. Uh, the stock has recovered, but, um, yeah, we've got this 5000 a week target, and, uh, you know, we're going to see next week uh, how close Tesla got. Most people seem to think they didn't get to it. Say, Liam, they've been hiring more humans in the production mm. flow. Does this just mean that their production problems have been that the robots just aren't keeping up production, or is it a cash flow issue? Well, I think it's both. Um, I mean, the cash flow issue for Tesla is, is chronic. Uh, you know, just just to kind of set this in context, um, you know, Tesla is not a self-funding business. It requires uh, pretty regular infusions of third-party capital. Uh, and in fact, one of the reasons it really needs to get into its stride with the Model 3 is not only to reduce its cash burn, um, but to potentially tee up further cash raises to, to fund some of its other projects as well. Um, but I think, you know, I think in some ways with, the, with, this, with this focus on, the, on getting to, you know, 5,000 Model 3s a week, you almost need to kind of step back here and say, um, you know, what really is the significance of that number? You know, we've seen Tesla, you know, like rip out production lines. We've got this, this rather strange shed-like structure that's gone up um, next to the Fremont factory. Um, you know, it's all very unorthodox, um, and it all seems geared towards hitting this 5,000 a week target, even if it's not an average for the quarter, just kind of getting to it in the last week of the quarter. And you sort of have to ask yourself, okay, what is a target for, really? It, it's meant to incentivize the workers at the, at the company. It's meant to mark milestones of progress. It's, it's kind of a means to an end. With Tesla you begin to think that the target is the end in itself and that what should be a long-term um, plan for, for getting to sustainable production is kind of being managed on a quarter-to-quarter basis. And, you know, I'm just very skeptical that that's really a healthy way for this business to be developing. Well, it sounds like Elon Musk would agree with you, Liam, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, you know, and I feel like he has said that, that, you know, he's thinking longer term and, okay, if I miss these marks. But it, but 
It's a publicly held company, and there are investors who have invested in this company, and a lot of investors. And the stock, you know, is up 45% last year, and it's up another 11% this year. You know, there are expectations, and at some point, it's got to kind of meet its marks, right? Isn't that a sign of how well maybe the company knows its business and how it's managing it? Well, you would think so. I mean, I think, look, put it this way. I think if you had any other car company, you know, announce a critical product, um, you know, two years ago, mm-hmm. and then you, you, you reach this point and it's, it's sort of missed that by about 90%. You know, I think if that was GM or Ford or another car company, you know, I think the CEO would be having a, a fairly awkward conversation with the board if the CEO was still there. Right. Obviously, Tesla is a very different company. It has announced all sorts of targets over the years, which it has missed. Uh, and thus far, at least, um, equity investors don't seem to really mind that. And the reason being that Tesla has always been predicated on this idea that, you know, whatever happens in the near term, um, it will dominate an electrified future that is at some nebulous point, you know, sometime out in the 2020s. So, so investors do cut it a lot of slack. I think the significance with the Model 3 is it is a critical product product for the company. It is it is their attempt to go from being a very high-end niche sports car maker to being more of a sort of mass-ish uh, car maker. If they can't demonstrate that they can actually manufacture it at scale and profitably, then I think at least some of even the most committed Tesla fans must start to ask if the company can actually get to where it's going, at least get to where it's going without another potentially hugely dilutive capital raise. So, Liam, the investors are also investing in him. And his word is out there that uh, he's sleeping on the factory floor and side by side with an intern bolting the tires to the to the car. Uh, is that a signal to the investors just that he's got so much sweat equity, so to speak? Just got about 30 well, seconds here. I, I think like so much with Tesla, you know, fans of Tesla will read that as a sign of commitment. Skeptics will look at it and say, I prefer my car companies to be the kind of place where the CEO doesn't have to sleep next to the production <laughs> right. line. That's great. But you got to appreciate it, right? We talk about all these young startups and what people do to kind of get a company off the ground. And we got to remember, I mean, Tesla just went, what, public back in 2015. So it's not that old a company. And I guess... You know, we have to think about how we classify this company. Is it an auto car company? Is it a technology company? Is and he says startup? it's a tech company. Yeah, exactly. Right? Uh, Liam Denning, uh, good things to think about on this uh, Friday when it comes to Tesla. He's energy mining and commodities columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. It is our commentary section of Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone in New York. Tesla shares out, up, as we mentioned. This is Bloomberg. Everybody, our next guest company counts Amazon, Comcast, Microsoft, and Salesforce among its investors. Uh, Chuck Ganapathy is founder and chief executive officer at Tact. It's a company that makes what it calls a conversational AI sales platform. Joining Ted and myself on the phone from Redwood City, California. Um, Chuck, let's just start right there. A conversational AI sales platform, AI, of course, for artificial intelligence. What exactly does it do? Carol, uh, Tactile AI is an artificial intelligence platform for sales. Our software runs on phones, smart speakers, and in car 
to remove friction from a salesperson's daily work life. And that drives revenue growth for our customers like Cisco, Dell, GE, and Honeywell. What's the friction that you're removing? Explain a little bit more. Well, you know, in sales, you're constantly chasing two things, right? The data you need and the people you need to get deals done. But unfortunately, salespeople are stuck in these endless meetings and email threads and clunky apps, which takes away from the very thing they're paid to do, being in front of customers. So we give them two things. We give them an AI assistant. That's the next best thing to having your own personal assistant or EA. And we give them a digital workspace that's the next best thing to having their own war room for every deal with all the right people that are going to help them close it. Well, Chuck, often it's difficult for techies to describe what the product does. Carol's kind of getting at it. But can you tell us specifically what this AI sales assistant does? Put us in the chair of a salesperson. That's right. So if you're a salesperson, think about all of the applications that you have to use in order to do your job, whether it's sending emails, making phone calls, looking up somebody on LinkedIn, maybe updating your sales activities in a CRM system like Salesforce so your manager can run their pipelines. Now, you're, as a salesperson, you're incentivized to be in front of customers. That's the only way you're going to make money. But instead, you're sitting in behind a computer juggling between these multiple apps. What if you could have an executive admin, just like an executive at a company might have an EA to do all of those things for them, whether it's filing an expense report or booking a conference room? Similarly, wouldn't it be great if you could have an executive admin for every one of your salespeople? That means they're spending less time in front of a computer, doing less admin work, and spending more time in front of customers. Well, I know salespeople just hate the moment that they have to pull (laughs) all the receipts out of their pocket or their wallet and have to submit yeah. that expense report. So in other words, it automates a lot of those procedures that can take time and take a salesperson away from what really matters, and that is boosting sales. That's exactly right. And that's why our customers love this solution, because it really helps them drive revenue. Because the only real way to drive revenue is get salespeople spending more time in front of customers. What's the technology? What's the algorithms behind it all? Well, you know, uh, we're part of this massive platform shift that's currently underway And it's this perfect storm of artificial intelligence and edge computing. Mm -hmm. If you look at consumer technology companies, they were the first to take advantage of this. Everything from your iPhone to Uber and the Alexa. And we're bringing that kind of innovation to create the next generation of enterprise software for companies. And, and, you know, like I said, all of our, our, our investors are excited by that vision. Boy, earlier Carol mentioned how you had these investors, Amazon, Comcast, Microsoft, Salesforce. Monday, you announced all four of them were investing with you. I mean, how did you coordinate this, and uh, how did they find you? You know, they've all been business partners with us for for many years. I myself spent uh, five years at Salesforce.com before I started this company, and they've been a great business partner from the time I founded the company. We've been working with Amazon and with Microsoft for the last three years in developing our products. For example, we announced at the Amazon reInvent conference last year in November in Las Vegas, we were a launch, a launch partner for their Alexa for Business product, and we were the first enterprise skill on it. Now, with this round of financing, we've gone beyond being business partners and product partners now to them having a vested interest in our company. So does that investment allow you to have future products, or you're going to be expanding, presumably, um, what, uh, in India, perhaps? You know, we, we are obviously, uh, our, our funding is going to be used to develop the product. Innovation is the lifeblood life of a startup, and we'll, we're going to be doing more of that. 
bringing voice into the enterprise. We announced a product called Voice Intelligence earlier this week. We also announced our intelligent workspace. So product innovation is key for us, and we'll right. be a, we'll, and this round does that for us. But also, we're going to be expanding globally. Our customers are some of the largest companies on the planet. Yeah. Cisco, Dell, GE, Honeywell. They have tens and thousands of salespeople that work globally. So we have to be present along where they are so we can support these rollouts. Edge, um, forgive me, Chuck, if you could be quick. Edge computing, edge intelligence, what exactly is it? Just quickly. Great question. Think about cloud computing. If cloud computing meant putting a computer on the Internet, edge computing is putting the computer in the palm of your hand. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Mm. This is why I like talking to companies like this because I feel like that's where we started learning more and more about AI a few years ago and the use of it. Um, Edge computing, edge intelligence. Um, Chuck Ganapathy, thank you so much. Founder, CEO at tact.ai, or the product is tact.ai. The company is tact. Based in Redwood City, California, which is where we found him on the phone on this Friday. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Master along with Ted Canova, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. Time for the drive to the close. Back with us, Ed Keon, Chief Investment Strategist at QME, QMA. Let's try that again. QMA, Quantitative Management Associates. $137.5 billion in assets under management. Ted, uh, Ed joining Ted and myself from Newark. Ed, good to have you back. Um Barely bullish is what your current position is. What does that mean? Well, uh, first of all, it's a nice play on words, but uh, <laughs> it means that we Yeah, but are... wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is it really your strategy? <laughs> well, it's still, it says we're still bullish, so we're still overweight stocks in our multi-asset portfolios, but that we are uh, less bullish than we have in the past, and we've concentrated our equity bets now in the United States market, uh, whereas uh, earlier in the year we had a more broadly distributed why are you doing that? Well, it, it partially, it's the positive case in the U.S. why we're still bullish is, of course, things that you talk about on Bloomberg every day. Uh, very strong earnings growth for this year and continued strong economic growth for now. But there is a sense that it, we may be just about as good as it gets. And around the rest of the world, um, the economic data has looked kind of weak recently, uh, as though that the peak has already occurred and we may actually be on the slow side. And uh, so we think it, it. we feel pretty good about our U.S. exposure, but uh, we've pulled back. And, of course, all the talk about the possibility of a trade war also uh, influences our thinking. So, Ed, you've said that no one wins a real trade war. It, it raises costs. It put pressure on inflation. Uh, which trade war do you fear most, Canada, China, or the EU? I would say global. <laughs> so, <laughs> all of the above. Yeah. Okay. So, the, uh, so I, I guess – I guess a couple of things. So clearly there's a growing consensus among uh, many people that the U.S. and the West in general uh, has, needs to take a tougher stance towards China on intellectual property and trade practices in general. Uh, whether the, the president's approach of slapping tariffs is going to be effective or not uh, remains to be seen. 
Uh, also, I think most people would think if you're going to go uh, in a tough battle with uh, China, you'd like to have your allies on your side. And so the, um, the, uh, the tariffs on, on uh, Canada and the EU and so forth you know, may be counterproductive. On the other hand, you know, the, the U.S. approach towards uh, China has not been terribly successful over the past uh, 20, 30 years in having them curb their behavior. So maybe uh, the president's approach will eventually bear fruit. I'm sure you take such a long-term view of what's going on. But in your daily conversations, when you get to work and you're talking with your colleagues, are you tweaking your strategy? Well, as I said, we have pulled back a little bit in our non-U.S. equity exposure. And so we, we're still, we still like stocks more than bonds, but we're holding a bit more cash than usual. And we're just generally more cautious. I think the the risk, not just of a trade war, but the, the risk that uh, the economic situation on a global basis, especially if we have a trade war, but even without that, uh, look maybe a little softer to us now. The City Economic Surprise Index is pretty negative outside the United States, and so it's possible that um, we may have already seen the best growth there, and and uh, earnings growth uh, expectations have been kind of rolling over a little bit outside the United States. So I I think uh, it's time for maybe a little greater caution than we had a couple of years ago. Yeah, I'm curious, too, how, mu- how often the R word, the uh, a recession, co- kind of creeps up in conversations that you're having now. Is it more yeah. frequently than it used to? Well, you know, we obviously will eventually have another recession. Right. That's uh, just part and, of the cycle. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and we try to frame it from a, a probable or statistical point of view. So on average, the United States has been in recession about 20 percent of the time. And so if you say over a a three-year time horizon, what's the odds of being in recession? Uh, It's 0.8 times 0.8 points. I don't know, 50-50 is the bottom line. So in any given uh, year, if you're saying what's the odds that over the next three years we'll go in recession, knowing nothing else, you'd say on average it's about 50-50. Well, we were were in one of the longest economic cycles ever, uh, and the Fed is tightening monetary policy. So generally speaking, the thing that finally drives us into recession is monetary policy that turns out to be too tight. Plus, the Fed is coming off an unprecedented situation where monetary policy has never been as easy uh, in, in human history as it has been over the past several years. Right. So trying to figure out what normal is, it's, it's a real struggle, and yeah. the odds are they may make a mistake. Normal with quotation marks, I think. Um, Ed Keon, thank you so much. Chief Investment Strategist at QMA, Quantitative Management Associates. $137.5 billion in assets under management on the phone from Newark. Don't go anywhere. We've got the close coming your way in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.